Hello guys and welcome back to radio. Um, this is a podcast created by the Entrepreneurs Organization in South Africa. So we decided we'd go with radio. Uh, radio. <laughs> she started again. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I don't know. There was a confusion. Is it radio or is it radio? Is it radio or radio? So I think what we should do is just say it like, uh, welcome back to... Yeah. And then, and then people don't know. Yeah. Not a very good intro. Though. No, okay. Hey, welcome so to... So I mean, let's decide on air right now what it is for now and forever. Radio. Cool. Radio. Well, you know what I guess? Because it makes it slightly different and be easy for people to remember. Cool. So radio. Radio. So, so you go, you can do the first ever official intro of the newly named Ladies radio. and gentlemen, welcome to the Yo South Africa radio show. Um, we're sitting here with um, Imran from the, the Law Chapter. Um, he is the regional chair of EOMEPA. Um, he is currently starting a new property business, which we'll probably talk about a little bit. He was part of his family business for 13 years, and then he started another family business three years ago, all in fashion retail. Welcome to the show. Imran. Thank you, Ross. Glad to be part of it. Yeah. Do you, do you want to tell us a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey, uh, getting involved in the family business, uh, what led you to EO and um, you know, where you're headed right now? Just bring us up to, up to speed. So I joined the family business in December, uh, January, or actually February 2005. That was when I joined the family business. Um, I initially started off with a textile spinning mill. We were setting up a new plant in Lahore. I was earlier based in Karachi, so I was moved to Lahore. Um, didn't know anything about textile, didn't have any idea what the hell it is all about. Uh, learned a lot on the way, um, was able to grow the business to new heights. We, I was able to double the capacity in the next five years. Had fun in that. Uh, then started off a new business within the family for poultry farming as well. My cousin took over. He was there after that. And then something different happened all of a sudden. So in a family business, you have someone who's an adult, your elder, who started the business, which was my father. And then his brothers joined in the business. And then we kids came in the business. So we were like 10 or 15 odd people in the business altogether. Um, but we never actually planned a succession plan in the business for the third generation to come in. So what actually happened was when my nephew was about to join the business, we didn't really have a proper planning for him done. And when the bigger board, everyone sat together and they decided what we should do, we came to a proposal and a point that it makes more sense for us to do something for him separately because if he joins this business, <coughs> he never actually makes proper shareholding for himself which is actually pretty shitty because if you can't make equity in the business, then what are you doing there? That's a waste of your time. So it was decided that the better part for it would be that if he actually starts something new. Um, me and my brother sat together because it's now our decision that our kid is coming in the business. What do we do? Um, we came to a conclusion that, yes, we should do something different. And then we further thought about it and we said, well, he's a kid. He can't do everything on his own right now. We got the support of our elders. One of us has to exit this family business and go out of here. Where after a lot of discussion, it was decided that I would leave that business. Because I had been somehow the kind of a guy always known for the business development side in our family business. So I said, it's better for you to exit out. And I exited my family business. So I have my shareholding there, but I am not active in that business anymore. I don't take care of anything over there. And all of a sudden, out of almost $120 million company that I was running, I was thrown out of the picture and we decided we're going to do a retail business where I hadn't got even a clerk in my company to order something to. <laughs> so the funny part was I had to hire a person from the clerk till the CEO myself. I had to build a whole new team, a whole new structure, find a new place for the office, find the new place for the 
uh, manufacturing of the garments that we're doing for our shops. Uh, the model actually that we work on that specific retail brand is um, that we want to make people buy now or cry later. So we want to make sure they don't get enough of what they want. So we were making very small quantities. We're still making very small quantities. So what we do is we don't give any sale discounts. We just put up those products in the, in the shops and we make sure it's all sold out. So in order to do that, in order to create that hunger in the market, we need to give really, really small quantities of the products that we make. And we needed a big design team at the back as well. So the cost of the office was going high. Uh, the economies of scale was hard to achieve because of the low volumes. Uh, we can't outsource it because if you used to go outsourcing, people were like, we can't make small quantities for you. You have to do it on your own. And to do that with that specific cost in our own hand, uh, the, the cost were like crazy. They're still really high right now, but they're coming down gradually because we're now expanding our businesses. So this is the business that came out eventually. Um, two years later, my nephew got the hang of it. Uh, he took over that business pretty well. Now he's taking care of it. And there to guide him on the financial and accounting matters generally. But now since I have free hand, I don't think that I want to go back to the same old family business. I'm getting more fun. I'm finding it more fun actually to do something on my own differently. Um, in that perspective, we actually sat down again and we said, let's do something different. I don't want to get it back to the family business. I have a shareholding there. I'm happy with that. I don't need anything more from them. And then I decided that let's do something in property. So property apparently in Pakistan, there's a high demand. Uh, we have a growing population. We have 200 million people plus in Pakistan. And uh, we have a low supply. So we decided we're going to get into property development business. So what we do is we buy a big chunk of land, get it up like a proper boundary wall gated community. And inside we develop, we cut out the roads, we give them the water supply lines, electricity, gasification, everything, um, hospitals, schools, and we sell them out in smaller lots into residential and commercial. So it's like a mini town kind of a thing. Um, we are on the approval process right now. I've got everything planned, submitted to the government. And hopefully by the end of this month, I'll be pretty much done with that. And we'll come to sales as well. So, so basically, you've really just not been doing much with your life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Since 2005, you've been basically a one-long holiday. <laughs> wow. I want to take you back a little bit. There was a, a principle you mentioned that really intrigued me. It was that buy now or cry later. Uh, I mean, I think that's, that's quite amazing. So you almost held back. You created like market tease, teasing the audience into it. Like if we don't get in today, we're not, you know, your market. Teasing them said, if we don't get it today, we're just not going to be able to get it. Where did you pick up on this? Were there other brands that inspired you? I know Chibo, I think it is in Germany, has something like this. What, what made you realize this was the way to go? So in Pakistan specifically, we are having actually going on a specific consumer boom right now. So the retail market is actually booming all of a sudden in Pakistan since the last five years. We didn't really have big shopping malls. They're coming in right now. Things are changing. Pakistan is not really a place where you get a lot of tourists coming in. So typically the retail brands, they're kind of getting addicted to the concept of putting out sales, 50% off, 70% off. And what they're doing is actually indirectly cheating your customers because you increase the price overinflated before going on the sales and all of a sudden you put out sales over there. So when you're trying to drop the prices by increasing the sales and everything, people only want to buy when you get sales. They don't want to buy on normal product shelf life. They want to buy only when discounts are out there. We want to challenge that concept because that's a wrong business concept. Uh, what if five years down the road, the situation changes and now you want to build a new brand for this? It doesn't make any sense for us at all. So what we decided was, how can we do it? We were finding a niche for a very long amount of time. And what we decided was that, one, we want to give the trendy fashion for the young lot in Pakistan. Um, 
Secondly, we decided we're not going to charge them exorbitant amount of money. We're going to charge them just the right amount of money. And the third thing we decided was that if we want to do that, we want to make sure that somehow they come and they make sure they buy. So one of our catch lines that we're trying within our companies is that we want to do impulsive buying for trending young people. So that's our core purpose of our business. So when we created our strategy for the company, we said we're going to do it. We want people to do impulsive buying, targeting the trending young people. And for that specific reason, we decided that this can only happen if people go in with the flow of this line, buy now and cry later. They can't do it otherwise. The fashion has to run out fast. Fashion is like an FFCG. It's like a, a like an edible product, you can say. I mean, it's out there. But in 15 days, if an egg gets rotten, the fashion also gets rotten at the same time. One, one person has wanted, the other wants it at a lower price. Otherwise, they don't just want it at all. So that's what the confusion was over there. So we realized that even though we'll have to struggle initially, we have to go forward the same model. And we realized that initial brands like Zara and all of them, they're actually running somewhere similar on this line as well. They, they are going on the massive production through their stores going out. I mean, they've expanded stores across the world now. So that's how they're becoming one of the giants, like $21 billion in sale now. So they do a massive stuff over, massive job over there. Yeah, my understanding is that they often will create very, very fast, um, very short uh, runs. They'll test them in certain stores and then based on how they work, like literally they've come up with an idea and 60 to 90 days later, it's in the store. Yeah. Exactly. And then they're running it. I mean, a genius. Amazing the way they do it. But they're, they're even more smarter actually. In the retail, what I've actually realized is the, one of the most important things in retail is how you plan your merchandising. It's not about what the product you're giving out. It's the timing and how you plan it out. So for example, if you have a same product, you probably won't even sell it out in the 10 countries you have your stores in. You're going to send it out to two only because at that specific moment, those two countries are the target market. Mm. And then you're going to take it out from the shelf over there and send out the other eight countries. And it's going to sell better on the eight countries once it has actually sold on those two countries. Yeah. Because sometimes people are following the trend of that country. So it's, it's so it's so different and unique. I mean, within the same city, if you have four stores, one store is buying a different design altogether than the other store. And Imran, how did you find, so obviously a key part, and remember in Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, he spoke about getting the mavens. You obviously had to get those trendy people. You had to really target them and make them want to be there. How did you target the key individuals that would drive the behavior? So this is something I'll give a little bit of credit to EO about as well. Um, I've been in EO for almost now seven years. Okay? Um, I've been on a leadership journey of EO for the last five years as well. Um, Along the line of EO, I've met some amazing entrepreneurs like you and Ross over here as well. Um, all the guys I met in EO had a lot of passion about how they actually did this first generation of business. And their ideology and their mindset was much different than how I'm thinking. I was coming into family business. I mean, for me, the biggest school was my family itself. They were teaching me what's going around. When I joined EO, I learned from people on how they actually face the ground realities of starting a new business. It's altogether a different ball game than what it, I, my father probably saw that. He faced the tough time in a different way. But I wasn't facing the same way. I mean, I was probably a child born with a golden spoon. So how do I make that different choice for myself was a big challenge for me. And then I realized gradually when I was starting to meet people, people were going for these strategy summits and strategy consultancies and everything. I'm like, what the hell is this? What is a strategy consultancy? I mean, how could someone else come and make my strategy? That's the first thing I was actually asking myself. And then we decided around three years, two years ago, okay, what the hell, let's give it a shot. We do something like that as well. 
So one of our global ex-chairmen, Gilberto Crombe, I actually invited him to come and do a strategy for me and my brothers and my nephew. Um, he came in. Um, I remember the first three days we sat in, we, we left our own city. We went to Islamabad, that's the capital of Pakistan. We stayed in a hotel for two days. And I remember the sessions we were doing, we were starting at 8 in the morning. And we were going out till 12 midnight, non-stop. We weren't stopping anywhere. And the problem was he was trying to teach us one thing at a very, very core level. And that was, what is the purpose of your business? And our answer, me and my brothers were like, making money. He's like, fine, making money is in any business. But you can make money selling drugs as well. You can make money selling anything. What kind of business you want to do, you need to decide. And that has to have a purpose. And he said the purpose is something that drives you from the day till the night. It drives you in your sleep that this is what I want to achieve. This is what I want to do. And this is where if I reach, I will say, yes, I've achieved something. I've reached somewhere. That specific point that he was mentioning, it took us a while to understand that. I mean, it took us almost one and a half day to understand. And he was adamant that you need to understand this. And I think that's a gift actually he gave us. Because now when we actually start entering a business, the first thing we're trying to focus is what's our purpose more than the money. Because the money is a byproduct. It will come eventually. You have to first realize what's the value you're giving back to your customers. How you're giving to your customers. Once he started saying that, that is where we found our purpose that we want to create impulsive buying for trendy young people. I also love that you, you designed your business model around the consumer behavior that you wanted. So you, you didn't reward people with sales or even punish people with sales and have this like unfair pricing model. You decided that you want to do limited edition stuff and the price is the price. And if you don't buy it, that's that. And that's the kind of behavior you've been rewarding from day one. And it actually comes back to the fundamental kind of reason for your, your company existing, which I think is great. Exactly, exactly. And that's one of the reasons what, what's guiding us in the right path at least. I mean, I met some people from the retail business and uh, when they met my nephew and they came to me again, they said, Ibrahim, I want to tell you something about your nephew. I'm like, what is that? He's like, I have not seen anyone so focused on what they're doing in this retail business so early part of the life. And I think that was the purpose the core essence of why you want to do that business. Well, I guess that's why you guys actually, I mean, if you strip it back, why you created it was to create longevity for this family business. Uh, it's almost a family first m mindset. Exactly. And I almost feel that you don't have to, you know, as a start, that is a culture, that is a, a purpose, is how can we create something that can have a positive effect on the entrepreneurial journey of our family beyond one or two generations? Yeah, I mean, it's very different to how you know, like I wasn't born into a family business and I love this idea that you, you have this family business that your father built, included your uncles, then included you and now you guys see that there's no space for the next person. So you're almost like, how do we create a new business to support the next generation? It's such an interesting it, approach to starting something. It also almost goes against what you typically hear, you know, when you read about these sagas and these family businesses and how, the, 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 you know, the cousins are always against each other and everyone's, you know, the machinations, the idea that, um, that what you can just do is create more. Uh, that instead of thinking like, well, uh, everybody knew that comes in as a smaller divide of the pie, you turn around and you, it seems to be your attitude is just buy more pies. And, and let's just continue to divide <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. And it, it seems like um, we spend so much time arguing, even on market share. So we look at all of the competitors and we think, well, we've got this fixed market share. Almost that we have to divide that market share into as many. And then another competitor comes in, there's another divider. 
But if you realize that Nimran's mindset, that cousin, is you could see him as a competitor, him or her as a competitor, uh, or you could turn around and say, well, hold on a second, there's an opportunity, and uh, let's find a new pie. And I love the fact that they've gone from, you know, like a poultry business to a fashion business to a property business. These are very different, and they're all this around this core idea. I mean, there's underlying purposes for each of those, but that core idea that um, uh, we can create more for our family, and uh, I mean, I think that's amazing. Isn't that, I mean, I suppose we've, I mean, we're sitting at um, Ignite, which is our regional event here, and I think one of the core themes that's come across everything is kind of, why are you doing this? Why, why are you driving so hard? Why are you working so hard? Why are you putting in all those hours and all that time and all that energy? And I think having that underpinning of building generational wealth, like looking after a family, looking after kind of a bigger, a bigger thing is, is quite an you interesting... You know what was, yesterday there was one of the speakers, um, I think it was Marcus, who... He actually mentioned Marcus this. Point. I think he, it was Marcus who said this. I think he mentioned specifically that in a family business, I think it was Marcus or someone else, I'm just confusing right now maybe, but I think he said that in a family business, it's better to exit in, in a nicer way rather than go at a point where you actually have to bust and fight and whatever you have to do. So right now where we're standing, it, what happens is that a family business can only take so many people. You can't have 10 CEOs running the same show. One CEO can run one show. You can have managers eventually. So what happens is, uh, my father was probably the CEO. His brothers came out. They became the VPs of everything. And the kids are coming in. They become the supervisors now. So technically speaking, yeah. unless you have more businesses, you can't create CEOs. And if you're not creating CEOs, not creating entrepreneurs, then you're technically killing the entire concept of a family business. Yes. There's a key lesson. So we did some work with a, a fitness brand recently called Switch. And uh, that we were working on how they wanted to roll out. So they had a Cape Town store run by a very uh, uh, charismatic pair. And then they opened a couple in Joburg, and then they were opening in New York. And we had to work with them on how to replicate. And we, we worked with both the first business and the second one. And when we were working with the first one, it was almost impossible to create anything tangible that they could replicate. Because so much of that was the entrepreneur's DNA. It was your dad. It was, you know, this is this guy's vision. This is what they're doing. The rainmaker principle. Right. So what we did is we looked, we created the blueprint from the first clone because we realized that the first clone was actually the more replicable uh, business model that you could follow. That if we could turn around and say, well, how did they build it? These are people who weren't influenced by that, you know, rainmaker day to day and things like that. And how could they replicate that? And then we created that going forward. So the model we created for all the, the further gyms was actually based around the second one, not, not the first one, from the first child or the second generation. And I think that's what you guys have done, is that your father created the business. But what um, would make it replicable was the decisions made by the second generation and how they could actually build a business that could last generation after generation after generation. And I feel as entrepreneurs, we don't do that well. If it's still us having a conversation, we're still your dad. And we need to learn how will this look one, two, three, four generations down. Because your dad created a business. You created a way of looking at a business and a way of growing a business. And what you and your brothers have done, I think, is created a, a system of thinking around how we can create more for everyone, but yeah. still have that family first. I don't do that in my company. And then the one other little story I want to tell you that I heard last week was um, I was in Denmark and um, the, the king of Copenhagen had his navy destroyed by the British because um, the British were worried that he was going to go join with Napoleon and they were a dominant sea force at the time. 
So they burnt down all his boats. And what he did is he went and he planted a forest. And his idea was that they wouldn't be able to recover the Navy now, but three, four or five generations from now, the trees would be big enough uh, uh, for them to cut down the trees and then, and then uh, uh, build more boats. Now, ironically, obviously, by this stage, we were building boats out of metal, and so the forest is still there. But I don't think we do enough with the long-term ge generational thinking. And I feel that this is what you guys have done so well. Tell me something. You mentioned this word family first, right? So when we actually were strategizing our business, we went down and we said, let's find out the core values that what we need to have in our business. And the core value should be something that's actually in our DNA. It's like, if that changes, we will change, we'll die. We just can't survive without that. And we actually came to a point where we realized that our father has always said family first. For us, it's also the family first. So we're going to use that as one of our core values. And just to mention that it's officially written in our core values, that's one of our core values, family first. And now we try to make sure that that family first core value is understood by the employees of the company as well. But it's not like it's only our family first, it's their family first as well. But when you tell them that your family is really important to me, they actually treat you like a family. And that's the culture of family business typically because employees are like your family members with you. They, they go, I mean, in family businesses, we have people working with us for like 25, 30 years as well in my other companies. Um, one of, just to give you a quick example, the business was just starting the retail one. The first shop was supposed to be opening up. Three weeks before shop opening up, there was one of the guys who works in a company. He's not a very senior guy, probably a assistant manager kind of a guy at that time. Um, he was having a first baby born. His baby was born with some problem of having the right breathing going on or something. And just under two days later, that young child died. The shop was opening in the next three weeks. When the shop was opening and he was doing a lot of key stuff and I found that his baby is born, his problem, I told him just leave. And he wouldn't leave. Like, no, you have to leave. Just leave. We'll take care of everything. The work is secondary, family is first. We need to ensure the core value. And I just pushed him away. I gave him a car and just go. It was another city. He went there, fine. Oh, I got the information that the child died eventually, fair enough. He did the funeral, the next day he was at work. I'm like, what the hell are you doing here? You can take care of everything. He said, what has happened, has happened. This is my work, I need to be here. And I felt like I've achieved something really great that day. That I've actually achieved a family member. This is a guy I can rely on, this is a guy I can trust. He's not a guy who's my CEO, he's not a guy who's my GM. He's not even a guy who's my manager. He's someone junior. And he understands that core value just because we didn't say it to him. We ensured his uh, likeness. We made sure that we do what's right for him. And he's actually making sure what's right for the company. Fantastic. Mm. I love, I mean, it ties in uh, Carl Bates did that talk just now about how if you invest in people and you do it for their benefits, what you get back is, exactly. is so much more, you know, than you could ever actually expect. And I think I love this idea that you know, you treat people as a family and what do you do for family? You look after a family. You, you try really hard to make sure that the best is happening for them. And then what does family do for you? They make sure that the best is happening for you. I love that question that Carl almost made us ask and I wrote down here, am I prepared to suspend my agenda for theirs? You know, am I willing to say, well, yes, I'm opening a store, but this is it and we will suspend our agenda. Or, and in your case, you'd find another way. You know, you didn't have to stop, but yeah, amazing, inspiring. So I guess one of the things, major thing is these connections that you create within your businesses, your family, those connections are the real power. These connections make a difference. 
Actually, talking about connections, if you talk about EO this year in MIPA, we created a theme ourselves. So our theme is building bridges. And MIPA is a vast region. It spreads all the way from Pakistan to South Africa. It took me like 17 hours of travel time to just reach Turkey. <laughs> that wasn't a joke. But basically speaking, we're a vast region spread over two continents. We're really diverse people. We have people from Pakistan, Middle East, Arabs. You have Africans. You have the South Africans. We have different religions in the same area. We have Christianity. We have Judaism. We have Hinduism. We have Muslims over here. We have languages. It's a lot of diversity. But at the same point, this diversity is a big benefit for us. Because think about it. I mean, we want to understand how the multicultures work, how the different religions and different nationalities work. EO is just the right platform for that. So when we created this theme, actually, we are targeting to connect all these dots together. Our diversity is something we should celebrate, actually. And that's what EO is all about. So we created a theme of building bridges along this specific line. So when we were at our regional GLC, the Global Leadership Conference, and we were doing our regional council meeting over there, that's what we strategized on. We said our core purpose for this year is to build bridges. How are we going to do this? We targeted three central ideas. Leadership, platforms, and events. We're going to make sure there's an event for everyone out there. We made sure there's a platform that can connect people together in different ways. Maybe it's a GSEA, uh, maybe it's a trade business delegation, or something like that. So we're working on different ideas right now. And then the leadership. We'll be holding a regional leadership academy in Cape Town in January from 10th to 13th, I believe, right now. Uh, the president's meeting happens, uh, the monitor summits, uh, the learning summit. These are all leadership tools. So once we try to connect people together in some way or the other, that is exactly how the leadership improves. That's how people improve. So be it your company, be it EO, be it your personal life, be it your business, all 360 degree needs the connections to build those bridges together. Once the bridges are built together, it makes a big difference. And that's the big difference that we can actually make in our lives and the lives of the others around us. I love that take on what leadership is, that leadership is, is connecting people, growing people, building the people under you. And so often, I think people believe that leadership is about having a dog-headed approach and like just driving your agenda at all costs. And, and you know, you're talking, it's actually about kind of drawing people in, making them feel safe educating them, pushing them, driving them, building them, and, and that's kind of what leadership is. And I think that's a, an interesting story. I mean, you've, here you are building a retail brand in Pakistan that was strategized by a South American, you know, like now yeah. you're living that, like, that, that global kind of dream, um, yeah. which is amazing. Yeah. And I think it's probably a great point, I think you've got us to, to, to wrap up on. I think it's a, a really nice, I'm glad we've come the full circle to EO. And I guess, you know, as we've got you here, is there any kind of challenge you would like to leave the members of EO South Africa? And in fact, remember, this is a podcast for EO members of South Africa, but also for entrepreneurs in South Africa. Any challenge you'd like to, to leave us with or a message you'd like to leave us with before we wrap up the show? Yes, I would actually take this opportunity to request all the South African members to go and explore EO beyond the boundaries of South Africa. Um, I've met amazing South African members here, amazing people. They have so much potential, so, so much potential. But I think they're, they're not living the EO at fullest the way they should. I think they are missing the opportunity of finding what other, other people are doing around the world. Don't go far away. Within our own MIPA, we have so many things happening. We're having a EO Resonate event targeting the women of MIPA. It's not only for women, it's for men as well. In Tanzania, Dar es Salaam, in the mid of February. We're having a university happening within our own region in Jordan at the Dead Sea on 28th of February. 
uh, we're having a EO Grow, our regional event happening in Dubai, which is going to be built around the Harvard Business School concept with a lot of case studies and interesting learning. Um, we have the President's Meeting coming up as well, that's going to be in Europe. Uh, in Athens, we just changed the location actually. Oh, I thought yeah, I was going to say, I thought it was in Kenya. Uh, we were actually in Kenya, but because due to the election problems over there, we had to switch the location last minute. And then we have the, uh, the Regional Leadership Academy I just mentioned as well. Uh, we're also going to be doing one My EO event, that's a My EO Umrah, that's probably going to happen in Saudi Arabia in March. That's for the Muslims to connect together and do that spirit, holy, uh, spirit, the, the holy activity we do together. So we do it all together as Muslims of the region. Will they, will they let two atheists from South Africa? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to speak at that. <laughs> but I guess these events are the opportunity for the members Absolutely. to connect, to build those bridges and understand what's the power and potential of doing business together and understanding from each other about the roles and the benefits of being a member of EO. I honestly feel the true multiplier of EO is uh, the multiplying symbol is the events and the people that you meet. Um, and the beauty, of, I love our local chapters and I get so much every time, like today I've made pages and pages of notes. But there's something about learning from somebody from a completely different region or thinking or a different area, a different country. Uh, they just, uh, you know, it 10x's your, your value. So, um, dude, thank you so much for being on the show and, and just coming and sharing with us and hearing about your journey and, and how you think has been very, very inspiring. So thank totally you. Totally ignited to be here. Awesome. <laughs> Um, I think you're also definitely the furthest traveled guest for the show. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, right, guys. Well, thank you very much for listening. Um, we, we've been talking a lot about setting intentions over the, the, the last two days. So our intention is to release a show every two weeks. Um, and we know we failed at that recently. But we're working on it. But we'll do better, yeah. So, so thank you very much. You've been listening to Radio. Um, which is a podcast by the Entrepreneurs Organization in South Africa. Thank you very much to Bidvest, 10XE, LabourNet and ExecCare. You guys help us run this chapter and help us drive this thing. Thank you so much. And if you're an entrepreneur or an inspiring entrepreneur, you can go to the Entrepreneurs Organization website, which is eonetwork.org. Thank you very much. I'm Ross Drakes. I'm Richard Mulholland. This is Essay Imran. Goodbye. Cheers. Cheers.